That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folk U is produced at CKTZ. It's embarrassing. So that was a little bit of an accident because we're not ending, we're beginning. So let's try that again. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to my senses? Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to my senses? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. This season is dedicated to what is essential. What are the skills, the knowledge, and the resources we most need to be a resilient community member of the future? I believe that books, history, a deep knowing of our past, and creativity are all essential. And today, we have one of our most treasured professors, Dr. Brian Hayden, back to give us a little bit of all of the above in his part book launch, um, part uh, part archaeology class um, that we have here with his amazing book. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to ask you where you are listening from today. Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, and the air where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Glahus, the Kla'aman, and the Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. So, Brian, I feel like this is a, a big day. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it actually got uh, it actually got uh, delayed for a couple of weeks more. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Well, well. <laughs> uh, printing processes. No, nobody needs to know that though, because <laughs> you are actually holding in your hands a, a copy of a real live book, and this is not. Um, this is not like the other books because if people have tuned in before then you know um brian um hayden as a professor um and you probably think of him mostly in his role as an archaeologist he's taught at simon fraser university for over 40 years he's a research associate at the university of british columbia he's a fellow of the royal society of canada and, of course, he's one of our beloved and esteemed professors here at Folk University. Um, but 
you've got something. Oh, wait, wait. First, I have to say, please go and check out um, some of Brian's previous uh, shows on Folk U at You can do that at folku.ca backslash podcast, where he gives you an introduction to what is archaeology, the ancient people of this area, and even secret tribal societies, which you are going to have, I think, your um, appetite whetted for after today. But today is something different. Right. Because your archaeology and your um, interest in ethno-archaeological research has taken you around the world, and now it has taken you 20,000 years in the past into the realm of, of fantasy. Right. <laughs> so, you, you, the, so you have in your hand not another textbook, not another um, treasure of archaeological uh, uh, wisdom, although it kind of is, but a, a, a fantasy book. Well, it's an adventure book. It's an adventure book for uh, kids, uh, you know, 9 to 13 or so, uh, set in the Stone Age 20,000 years ago. So I thought, I mean, I've always liked uh, children's literature, and uh, I've dabbled in trying to put some stories together from time to time, and, uh, and I thought, well, with all this background, information that I've accumulated over the years, why not put it all together into something that, uh, and try to make it exciting for, uh, for readers, young readers in particular, but really readers of any age. Uh, so that's, that's what's happened. <laughs> and I, and I t- will say that it is not only exciting for children. Uh, I, I love it. And, um, and, I didn't even know we shared a love of, of children's literature, um, but it is one of my favorite genres. And we are not alone in the um, in this category of adults that like young adult um, um, fiction. Right. Uh, it is a big group. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, so um, I'm hoping that we – I have a lot of questions um, uh, okay. for you. And, sure. But I was thought maybe you would give us a little – a taste of of the flavor of the book. Could you do a little reading for us? Now? Sure. Yeah. Okay. And the book is called "The Eyes of the Leopard." Uh, so, uh, and it's about a, uh, a, the uh, the hero, I guess you could call him, of the book is called Sev. And um, we've got a little background noise here, <laughs> uh, and uh, a lot of the adventures that he he has in living in um, the Ice Age. So one of the adventures, the perhaps the main adventure, is that he goes into a cave on a dare. And uh, this is uh, uh, supposed to be forbidden, but uh, at any rate, he goes into this cave. And it's a cave uh, where the floor smelled of decayed stone and damp clay, and the recesses of the cavern had never known the sun. Um, at first he uh, gets disturbed by the shadows in the cave and then becomes entranced and starts wondering, could there be animals, monsters, or spirits lurking in the utter silence behind the huge chunks of stone that had fallen from the cave's roof at some point in its eternal existence? Everything around him oozed a sense of ancient timelessness. Farther in, the flickering of his pitch sticks revealed strange, frozen shapes cascading down the cavern walls. 
Farther still, the roof lowered, and long, bony fingers hung down from it, wet and shining. They seemed like icicles, but made of some kind of white crystal or stone. Drops of water clung to their tips. This was a completely different world, a world of dreams, like the images and deep springs that dissolved with the drop of a pebble. But these dreams were frozen, utterly unreal. The silence, too, seemed unnatural. It was total, broken only by the occasional plip of water falling into a pool somewhere deep inside the cave. Sev reached above his head and broke off one, of, one thin tube. As he turned it over in wonderment, cold water drained from inside the broken end. He tasted a few drops. They had a trace of chalky tartness. Wait until Runt and Arrow see this. With great care, he wrapped the treasure in a scrap of antelope leather and tucked it into his bag. Moving on, he noticed red dots marked along one wall. Mystified, he moved closer. The floor was wetter here. Clay oozed up between his toes, leaving deep tracks. Crouching down, he saw other footprints in the clay, he looked at the sizes and lengths of the toes and arches, but recognized none of them. They look recent. As Seb slid his feet sideways to obliterate his own tracks, the light from his pitch stick sputtered. He rubbed their tops against the wall to knock off the accumulated charcoal, and the flames sprang back to life. They illuminated a, dark, a stark black handprint on the stone inches from his face, his heart jumped. Higher up, the flame revealed the red-painted head of an aurochs, a wild bull. Before Seb could examine the drawing, a high-pitched shriek sounded from somewhere deep in the cave ahead of him. Another shriek came, and another, the echoes creating a clamor unlike anything he had ever heard. His knees turned to limp snakes, his mouth suddenly dry as dust. Is it the spirits? Are they coming for me? <laughs> it's a great part. So, um, thank you so much. So, I, uh, I don't know any other young adult books that take place twenty thousand years ago. Why did you choose that time period? Well. Um, there are a number of reasons, but uh, <laughs> one is that I know a lot about that time period, and it's one of my favorite time periods, and it's also, uh, you know, a really important time in in prehistory. It's the time when the caves became painted, you know, as we just uh, illustrated here, um, and uh, and it's a time of controversy in archaeology as well. And so there's um, a lot of a lot of debates in archaeology as to what society was like back then. Uh, there are some people that uh, think it's very egalitarian, and other people that think it's much more like um, egalitarian and nomadic, and other people that think that it's much more like the uh, cultures in the northwest coast here in the northwest interior. Uh, where they're a bit more sedentary and they're much more complex. They've got 
a lot of differences in wealth and poverty and and they produce great art. Uh, A lot of these uh, more mobile societies don't get into this kind of very sophisticated art. Uh, so uh, um, I thought it would be it would be fun because and, and also there's another reason in that the, as you mentioned there's there nobody really deals with this time period. Jean All did years and years ago, but the, she's really the only one uh, that is written for uh, young readers. And I thought uh, this would be fun. There's lots of things to draw upon, and. Uh, and it's an opportunity to also um, put together a lot of the uh, things I think about when I think about uh, this time period. Uh, I I come down on the side of the archaeologists who think that, you know, the things were much more sophisticated back then than we give them credit for a lot of times. So talk to me a little bit about this. It takes place in Europe. Um, I'm not exactly sure where in Europe you imagine it, but maybe you could talk about um, about why you chose that area and also what we do know about the people then. I mean, it's very easy. If it weren't for you and our previous um, and the previous archaeology and kind of ethno-archaeology experience that I have through Folk University because of you, <laughs> I think I would have thought that it was the people were basically Neanderthals then. Um, so help, help, you know, make me smarter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what were the people like then? And, and what, what do you imagine is the area? And what, what were the people doing in that area? Okay, well, that's a lot. That's a big chunk of, to talk about. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, they're not Neanderthals back then. This is the Neanderthals were um, the period just before this. So this is the first time that uh, what we call anatomically modern humans uh, arrive in Europe. Um, they actually arrived about ten thousand years earlier, but they continued on through this period as well. Um, and and so uh, the big question. So we know that the you know, mentally and anatomically, they're like us. Uh, the big question is whether their society was was uh, similar to our own or was very different as well. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but uh, it's set in, uh, this is during the Ice Age, so the ice, age, ice came down and covered a good part of the British Isles and Scandinavia, um, and it was in the Alps, and there are also glaciers in the Pyrenees. And so, you know, it was a very different kind of environment back then. And near the glaciers, things were pretty um, difficult. Um, but this is a little, this is further south from the glaciers, uh, and it's set actually in southwest France uh, in the Dordogne uh, region of France. And it's actually uh, set. Um, uh, in the, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't say this in the book, but uh, the setting really is along the Vézère River uh, around the town of uh, Les Aisies. And this is uh, called the French capital of prehistory, basically, uh, because there's so many classic archaeological sites there. Uh, Le Moustier from the Moustirian, um the uh, Magdalenian from La Madeleine, 
these are all right near, and the famous Lascaux Cave, uh, and also other p- famous painted caves. They're all within basically biking distance of uh, Les Aizis. Um And this, this area really seemed to have been uh, um, sort of like a refuge area for animals and people from, uh, from the advance of the, uh, of the glaciers. And so we get a real concentration of people and animals, uh, and it was more like the um, grass plains of the Serengeti uh, because the forest retreated to the valley bottoms, and the uplands were basically these lush grass plains, the savannas of the Ice Age, where all sorts of animals existed that just don't, are not there today. And they had lots of uh, animals that we think of as African as well. There were elephants or mammoths. Uh, there were tigers and lions and leopards and uh, rhinoceros and uh, just all sorts of, you know, that it was an incredible, um, like almost like a zoo, you know, just animals all over the place. Uh, and so it was a very rich environment. And uh, it supported very rich cultures and a lot of people in this particular area. So what we're looking at is an area that represents one of the high points of culture in the Ice Age. And these are the cultures that produce the masterpieces of sculpture, uh, masterpieces of um, painted art, uh, that every you know the world recognizes as being real milestones in in the development of culture and uh, and humanity. So I thought, you know, boy, it's uh, it's just a wonderful place to put a set a story and to uh, explore the nature of the societies that produce these these incredible works. I. I found myself when I was reading this um, having these really annoying questions that you're never supposed to ask authors, <laughs> what, which you know amount to, you know, what's real and what's not. And so, um, what I hear you saying, and I'd love for you to clarify this a little bit, is that you basically took your incredible expertise um, and knowledge as an archaeologist, and then. So which are like real facts about what we have left over from these times. And we can see here's caves. These caves go back 20,000, maybe even, you know, 30,000 years with with art and uh, cave art. Um, and we have animal remains of these animals. So there's the 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 nonfiction aspect um, of your own background. And then I imagine you just asking the question, well, what would it have been like? What, what would have been a th- the experience of a 13-year-old boy? Um, so can you flesh out um, how you played with that edge of what is real and what is fantasy in the creation of this book? Uh, well, it's a complicated process, um, but basically I've drawn very heavily on my own experiences with, uh, with hunting and gathering societies and also from, with the literature um, and so uh, we can we can reconstruct uh, some a lot of aspects of the societies by looking at you know what kind of common 
characteristics um, typify hunting and gathering societies. Uh, so one of the characteristics is that you get a fairly sharp division between what men do and what women do. And, um, and so that's one example. Um, but there are also, uh, you know, lots of details about initiations and things like that. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, their mobility, uh, the degree of sharing, um, when we get into more complex hunting and gathering societies, we get notions of ownership and things like that. So on the coast here, that's, that's very developed. You know, certain groups own certain lands or own certain property or objects or individuals own objects. Whereas with other hunting and gathering societies, at the more simple end, they, they emphasize sharing to a much greater degree. So we can look at comparative things like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, some, some things I've just drawn on that I think were more likely uh, present from my own personal experiences. For instance, when I was uh, working and living with the Australian Aborigines in Australia, I, I did that for my PhD research a long time ago. But um, the boys and girls live separately in different camps. You know, once they get to about six years old, all the boys and the unmarried men lived in in one in one structure, and all the uh, girls and unmarried women lived in another structure on their own, separate from their families, until they got to be marriage age. So uh, that became a feature in uh, in the book, um, and we get a lot of age grades in other cultures as well. You know on the Plains cultures in Africa and places like that. So it's a, it's a fairly common kind of a development. And I think it, you know, there's a good chance something like that would have existed in the past. Um, and then, uh, you know, I just, and also some of the research, the archaeological research and the ethnographic research, uh, there was a study done by Randy White uh, a number of years ago now uh, that found that most of the encampments, um, the, the big encampments along the Vizier River in the area that we're talking about around Lazy, uh, were right by fault lines in the, uh, in the geology of the area. And that was interesting because these fault lines created shallow uh, sills in the rivers that were fording places for animals. And so that became an important aspect in the story as well. So, you know, I'm drawing things from the archaeology that's been done, especially the archaeology into painted caves. And, and uh, I and uh, together with uh, an archaeologist friend, Suzanne Villeneuve, uh, did a, a, num a bit of work on the paintings in a number of these caves. Uh, not Lascaux because you can't get in there anymore, but in the other painted caves in the Lazy area. So we did a study on those, and they became very familiar with me and uh, to me. <laughs> and uh, some of the other caves I visited, they had these what are called soda straws hanging down from the cave ceilings, and they, you know, just like a straw, they're dripping out water. So that became part of the story as well that I just mentioned. And... Um, and then there were uh, ethnographic films of initiations that Norman Tyndale filmed back in the 1930s or maybe even the 20s uh, in Australia of initi initiations. 
and um, and these had uh, people being thrown up in the air. They had people going through very painful initiations and scarifications, um, and uh, and so the initiation. Uh, scene that I have is taken parts of it are taken directly from those films as well. Uh, the boys that had to lay down on the ground without looking at, with with, with their covering their eyes and uh, had these flaming branches being uh, brought down right next to them, um, and uh, so you know there are a lot of really interesting details. Like so, almost all the details like that in the book are derived from. Um, some sort of ethnographic source or another. Um, So I have a bunch of these details that jumped out to me when I was reading and, and, (laughs) and I, hopefully it's not annoying, but okay. One of the things that first struck me um, is you're describing, Oh, 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 oh. Oh. I I need to mention too, the, the, uh, the bone game that, uh, or the stone game that is described right at the beginning. That's drawn from, uh, the uh, the games that are played in the interior around Lillooet, uh, I've I've been involved in a number of those with uh, with some uh, elders in the area from uh, indigenous elders, First Nations elders, and uh, so that basically that that whole scene is drawn from British Columbia, and and the the uh, the detail of the eagle down coming off the. Uh, the hats being worn by the lodge members, the Lion Lodge members, that's right out of uh, West Coast practices of, uh, you know, when people would go process into uh, major events, they'd put this eagle down in their hats so that they, when they walked, the eagle down would come come out of the hats and be floating around them as they walked along. So, uh, you know, all of, all of those details are straight out of the ethnographies. It just makes me so happy that you wrote this book so that we so that these images live on. Um, And anyway, it just is so exciting. (laughs) Um, Okay, so here's and here's a detail that really jumped out at me. And I hope that it's not um, too ignorant, but you're describing maybe it was Sev or one of the boys as having freckles. Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, why would, I mean, these are the early Europeans 20,000 years ago, you know, Ice Age times, why wouldn't they? So what do we know about (laughs) things like freckles, skin color, eye color, um, about the the people who lived in that area 20,000 years ago? That's a very interesting point. (laughs) Uh, So the people that came into Europe, um, the modern people, uh, the anatomically modern people, came from the Near East. And uh, it's often thought that they had Near Eastern characteristics, you know, like uh, darker hair color, darker eye color, and things like that. Um, And the genetic uh, analysis that's been done on Neanderthal remains now seems to indicate that, in fact, the Neanderthals were the ones that had blue eyes and reddish hair. And if they had reddish hair and blue eyes, you know, it's a good chance that they had, some of them had freckles as well. So this particular character in the book, and, and there's also a lot of information or indications now from the research that's been done that shows that, um, oh, or green eyes, green eyes or blue eyes, um, that shows that there was actually a lot of, um, I don't know if intermarriage is the correct word, but inter, 
interrelationships between the Neanderthals and the uh, incoming groups from the Near East, and that uh, they had offspring that uh, you know had various characteristics, so that so that the uh, the fellow with these runt is called his his name. Um, he actually represents one of these uh, you know miscegenations between Neanderthals and and some of the uh, incoming modern groups. Uh. So then another thing that really stood out to me was, um, I think it's Sev has long hair, but Runt, I think it was Runt or um, Eros, had short, short hair. And I know it seems like a small thing, but it was like, would would they have cut their hair? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the uh, sources of information uh, that wasn't picked up on as much as I was hoping by the illustrator, was that um, we have a number of uh, drawings or engravings of actual people from this period, from the Ice Age. Uh, and there's there's not a huge number of them, but I would say there's probably a couple of dozen at any rate. Uh, and some of these are, look like they're clean-shaven, you know, and... Um, and also in uh, in Australia, in Tasmania, uh, people would uh, there. Some of the early paintings of the Tasmanians uh, show that they were clean shaven as well, or at least mostly clean shaven. And you know that there were. I think cutting your hair and being clean shaven was a sign of um, some importance. And so, uh, yeah, I thought I'd throw that in as well. And do we have anything to indicate that that would have been gendered back then? That there would, like, that it would be guys that were more likely to cut their hair and be clean shaven, and women that would be more likely to grow their hair. Uh, mm. Well, we do have a statue, uh, a couple of statues of women with longer hair. Uh, there are also women with uh, hats. And it's difficult to tell whether the hair might be gathered up underneath the hat or, or whether they actually the hats might be a, a kind of braid that was, uh, you know, just uh, fixed on top of the head. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's, uh, that's a little bit more difficult. So another, sorry, I just have sure. another. Keep it's going. so exciting to feel, to read uh, I mean, historical fiction, I think, is always exciting because it gives one such a vivid um, understanding of a of a period. And so well, I, everything, and I really read so much of this book, I was just like, oh, I have to ask Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so there is a pet ferret mentioned in the book as well as pet <laughs> wolves. Right. Um, and so I'm wondering about about pets, what we know about whether there were pets and what kind of pets and what they were used for. Right. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, and again, it comes from the ethnographies um, the, and the ethnographies of the Northwest here uh, because the Northwest was basically entirely occupied by hunting and gathering groups and most of them were fairly complex and sophisticated, like the Northwest Coast that we're so familiar with. Um, but the ethnographies that I uh, re- used for that were ones from the interior where they describe all sorts of animals being kept for prestige purposes by some of the more wealthy people. I mean, there's, uh, you know, 
eagles and uh, wolf cubs or, well, dogs, obviously, uh, in, in modern times. Um, but what else was there? There were small deer, small bear. There was small elk. There was, you know, just basically anything you could think of and keep. Um, and so uh, this, this seems to be a fairly common trait for complex hunting and gathering groups. Uh, sometimes you even find it among, uh, you know, not-so-complex groups like dingoes in uh, Australia. Um, and so uh, it, it's, it, come, it gets elaborated, certainly, as cultures become more complex and as people bec- have some sort of food surplus to produce because you need to food, feed these animals. Uh, they pretty much hunt out anything within... Uh, easy walking distance of uh, the places where they lived. Uh, And so, yeah, especially if you've got birds, you need to feed them. So it means producing a surplus to be able to feed these animals. Uh, And the ferrets, um, (laughs) that comes from an experience I had um, down in Campbell River staying at a friend's place, and they uh, they bred ferrets. They uh, had a whole slew of ferrets in their house and they would let them loose and these ferrets would go all over the place and get into your sleeves and get into your shoes and everything else and they're they're a real riot and so i thought i gotta describe you know include these in the book too um so you mentioned wealth um and or what you mentioned is food surplus which um i'm translating then as as wealth um, in that time. And if that seems like an amazing leap, it's because we've had Brian Hayden on before. So I encourage you to go back and to listen to some of the other uh, earlier podcasts so you can make those amazing leaps too. So uh, it's one of the things that really stood out to me was this idea of, of wealth and have and have not and what you needed in order to, to advance um, in, right. in even in early society. Yeah. So one of the things that um, that stood out was, so the main character, who's like, let's say like a 13-year-old boy, Sev, yeah. right. his uncle is encouraging him to kind of spend time practicing, to advance as a hunter, a carver, a trader, et cetera. Um, and, and, but there's this whole then thing about whether or not there was enough wealth then to help him advance in those areas. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about, about jobs. Jobs in, the, in, in these advanced hunter-gatherer societies, what, what a job meant, what, what did it mean to have a job, and, and what we know about the connection to who was allowed or who could um, access certain jobs. Right. Well, that's awesome. It's a big topic, and it's also a very contentious topic. Um, so we'll start with the surplus and the wealth. Uh, first of all, yes, surplus uh, to a large extent did constitute wealth or the means of getting wealth uh, in, in the form of other objects like uh, shells or amber or uh, carvings or uh, just on the, like on the northwest coast, you know, the carved bowls were part of the wealth. The carved um, spoons, the carved, uh, you know, any of the carvings or paintings were forms of wealth. Um, 
and uh, and this issue of surplus, I'm still arguing with a bunch of people in in France, uh, other archaeologists about it. But you know, one of the burials at La Madeleine, uh, the one of the type sites for the Magdalenian, one of the periods of the Ice Age, um, one of the one of the burials was of a boy, um, and he was buried with. Uh, clothing that decorated with over a thousand uh, dentalium shells. Now, these are shells that are only found on the coast, and at the time they would have been hundreds of kilometers from the coast. Uh, dentalium shells were also used on the coast here in the northwest coast and in the interior. We've excavated a bunch of them uh, in my excavations around Lillooet. And ethnographically, uh, you could get um, maybe 200 shells uh, for uh, two sticks of dried salmon. And a stick was composed of, I'm trying to remember here, uh, I think 100 dried salmon. Uh, and so that represents a lot of surplus. You know, you're, you're, tra- you're producing salmon to get a couple of hundred shells from the coast, um, and you're, you're drying a lot of salmon, you're butchering it, you're spending a lot of time and effort to produce this, and it's food you're not going to eat. All you get is the shells, and you can't eat the shells, so it's surplus, right? So to me, a thousand shells buried with a boy in uh, the Lazy area, you know, 15,000 years ago, represents a huge amount of surplus. It represents wealth, um, so for me, there's, there's no question at all that we're dealing with notions of wealth and, uh, and uh, surpluses. And this really represents the first time that we see this archaeologically, and I think it really sets the foundation for all the cultural developments that come afterwards, private ownership. Wealth implies private ownership, which you don't get before this time period. So this is the, the beginning of our type of society where we have individuals emphasized, where we have wealth, where we have surpluses, and we have payments for things. Uh, and one of the things that people... Uh, well, let me step back here a minute. So this, a, lot of, a lot of this is coming from the ethnographic information that we have on the coast and the interior as well. And the, the ethnographies for the interior, well, we could get into, sorry, I have to backtrack. We could get into how you can use the surplus food uh, in all sorts of strategies to advance your own benefits or to create more benefits for yourself. But, um, and how this develops into what we could call elites or maybe proto-elites, uh, some people that are definitely more wealthy than others and others that become disenfranchised. Um, but one of, the, uh, one of the ways that that can be used is to uh, claim that you've got special training for various kinds of things, whether it's carving or whether it's hunting or whether it's ritual work or being, becoming a shaman or something like that. Um, and once you, can, once you claim that there's special training needed, then you can claim special privileges. Uh, you can claim special privileges for hunting areas, 
for getting the best cuts of the game that's killed, for directing hunts, uh, for directing rituals, for um, all sorts of things. It's not as though you have to have training in order to become a hunter because people learn this thing by themselves. They've been, they'd been doing it for millions of years before now, but by claiming that you've got specialized training, you can claim specialized privileges in, the, in those domains. You can claim authority. You can claim, as I said, you know, special cuts of the parts of the, the kills uh, and special hunting areas, the best hunting areas or the best fishing areas or uh, whatever it happens to be. So that's really the way it fits into things. It's not as though people couldn't do these things without the training. They could, obviously. They've been doing it for so long. Let's see, I have... Um, okay, so then this kind of, I think, is related to oh, that. Oh, oh, I, oh, should, yeah. I should just oh, add yeah. on to that, that this is exactly what was going on in the interior of British Columbia with the First Nations there. Um, it's, it's in the ethnographies. So. Um, Okay, well, so that reminds me of another um, aspect that comes out in the book, that, which is, uh, so Sev, the main character, who's the 13-year-old boy, right. has moved to this area with his family. Um, you know, when we get this sense, they talk about the number of winters ago, so, you know, like maybe it's three years previously. And so some of this is, I feel like, a little bit of a look about what it means to be an outsider or a newcomer to to a place and a culture and Sev talks a little bit about how where they came from seemed simpler like a simpler culture a simpler mm. place mm -hmm. and and I was really interested in that because I mean I think some of that could just be like oh yes we always you know when we're young we always feel like where we came from is simpler um, but I also wondered if this sort of gets us then into the idea that um that culturally things were really different um, depending on where you were. Like it makes sense that in this area, which is uh, was so culturally rich uh, in Europe, this kind of southern France area, that it would be a more complex society because they had had the luxury to develop complexity. Um, whether that's a luxury or not, I don't know, but they have developed complexity. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, 20,000 years ago, but you know, somewhere else, maybe they, it was more egalitarian or simpler in other ways. So can you talk a little bit about what we know about, like why you chose sort of an outsider role and also what we know about um, different cultures even at this time? Right. Well, um, first of all, once again, uh, a lot of this is inspired by the uh, information that I've gathered on the plateau, the British Columbia Plateau, the Northwest Plateau, um, where, and the archaeology that I've been doing there as well, uh, because we are dealing with a, a major, huge village uh, around Lillooet called Keatley Creek. And uh, it was also, like Les Aisies, one of the big centers of cultural development in the interior. Um, 
but a lot of the ethnographies also describe, and the ethnographic information was that these were complex areas too because of the rich resources in that area, it's especially the fish resources that uh, were very abundant in around the Lillooet area. Um, but as you get further away from the main streams and the salmon sources, uh, the ethnographies indicate that groups were much more egalitarian and much more, much simpler. In Lillooet, we have uh, hereditary families that own fishing sites and uh, were basically elites, uh, chiefs, and um, and uh, yeah, for uh, the Mid Fraser Canyon was is known for that. Uh, that kind of very rich cultural development. Uh, so that we get that ethnographically, um, but also archaeologically in France. Uh, when we get a, into the areas near the glaciers and high up into the uh, mountains that uh, where things were much colder, uh, that the archaeology there indicates groups were much simpler. We don't get very much art. We don't get the rich burials. We don't get uh, you know any of these manifestations that occur archaeologically. And then when you get down into the um, there's a there's an area south of Bordeaux that's called Les Landes, uh, and uh, I traveled through that area, and it's very um, <laughs> it's very uh, very poor area. It's all sand. And so, and it's very flat. So basically, all you get there growing now is pine trees, and the only source of income. I mean, it's not good for agriculture. It's not good for animals. The only source of income that uh, historically was producing turpentine from the pine pitch, uh, and it was very similar to uh, an area in New Jersey where uh, my family uh, used to go for summers uh, to visit some of their family. My father was from that area. And uh, this is an area in New Jersey called the Pine Barrens. And so <laughs> so I adopted the name of the Pine Barrens for the same area in France that was so similar. And we'd go down there, and it was the same thing. There was, it was flat, sandy, uh, and people were known as being very poor in that area uh, because there are no resources. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were called pineys because they were sort of backwards. <laughs> and, <laughs> sort of, uh, and so we get this uh, variation in our own geography and in the geography of France and New Jersey. And uh, it certainly existed prehistorically in, uh, in this time period as well. Um, so that, uh, yeah, we do get poor groups with the that don't have the art, don't have the rich burials, don't have the wealth, um, and that went through periods of uh, you know, stress much more frequently than people living in these richer areas. As a matter of fact, in, um, we had something similar happen archaeologically in this, at Keatley Creek, the site where I'm working. We had a huge village there of you know, probably well over a 1,000 people, a 100 structures, uh, some of them very large with multiple families. Uh, and the whole place was just abandoned about a 1,000 years ago. And we don't know if that was because the salmon runs uh, were cut off due to landslides or climatic changes 
or uh, exactly what was happening, but all of the major villages in that area were abandoned, and it had to have been because of resource changes of some sort, um, just uh, undercutting the ability to get food. And so we would have had refugees going out of that area to all the areas surrounding it. Um, so, so yeah, okay, so so is that your understanding of what would have been behind most refugees, that people leave because um, their own communities lose whatever is their anchor? Um, or were there also uh, people who would were like immigrants who were just sort of like oh yeah it looks that life over there looks better i want to want to cross that border well that life over there is usually already occupied and so you need to you know either broker some sort of sweet deal with them or be able to kick them out and so that's the other one of the other major um causes of having immigrants is warfare and certainly there was uh, no lack of raiding uh, which I also tried to include in the in the book, um, and uh, hostilities between groups. So, but in in some of the cases, cases like uh, Keatley Creek, you know, if it was just warfare, you'd expect one group to be wiped out and another group to take their place. But we don't get that. We just get the whole area being abandoned. So I'm just really drilling down on this. So if it's annoying, yeah, let me know. Fine. But so I, my impression of Sev though was that they were like they had kind of you know like up and moved to the city. You know, you know, like we're yeah. in search of a better <laughs> life. Um, do, like, is that a thing? Do we have evidence that, or do you imagine that people did actually, um, like, in small numbers, seek kind of a better life and move? kind of up the complexity ladder by choice? Uh, well, there's uh, there are two things. One is that when you're starving, uh, you really need to uh, either find somebody you can move into that you've got relations with, usually along kinship lines. You know, if your daughter is married into another group, then you go live with her. Um or uh, through warfare, or raiding, you know, just pushing your way in. Um, so that, that that is a fairly common uh, pattern in times of stress. But also in times of, um, in normal times, a lot of, there's often a tendency for people to marry into other groups uh, or to marry their children into other groups so that, if better prospects come up in another group or if things become difficult for you and your home group, that you can go and live with them. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of mobility uh, that's built into these societies uh, because of the fluctuating circumstances and in order to make it possible to, uh, like today, I mean, we have a lot of mobility between, um, between places where we live in order to, obtain better jobs or um, better environments, whatever is important to us. So it was fairly similar in that respect in the, in the past as well. There And there was a, also a mention in here about learning 
like a high language, um, which seemed like it was both a language that you might use with visiting kind of like dignitaries or, you know, kind of important people as well as maybe um, important people within your own uh, clan. Do we what do we know about language and whether there were common languages and also the same idea of class based languages? Right. Well, uh, certainly in our area, Chinook was the main uh, trade language and um, and the main traders were usually elites. And so it was the main elite and ritual language as well for any sort of interactions between groups. Uh, so we get uh, an example right here, but it, that was also characteristic in the B.C. interior, uh, the Northwest interior. They also used high languages for rituals. And any public presentations or formal speeches, uh, it's often, it was, James Tate, by the way, is the main ethnographer for the area around Lillooet and the interior, the interior Salish groups. And he says the chiefs often had translators, you know, they would give, uh, just like in Parliament today, you know, you get speech in one one uh, one of the official languages and somebody else is there translating it to another language. Well, they had, for their formal speeches, they would give them all in these high languages. And then uh, their the chief's assistant would uh, translate it for everybody else who didn't understand that language. Wow, that is so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 I mean, you know, I think that's a, a it's a mistake we make all the time is to assume that complexity only exists within our own time or that's culture right. or, or anything else, right? That's right. Yeah, these groups were pretty pretty sophisticated. Okay, so I feel like this is a a big question, but um, uh, let's try to at least tackle it, and then we'll stop and say a station break or two. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so. There's an incident in the book where um, where one of Sev's peers drowns. And uh, so, you know, this is like a 13-year-old boy. Um, and, he, and that happens in, um, in the act of him hunting. And I wonder what we know about mortality and how people um, dealt with the knowledge of, of their own and each other's mortality. Uh, I know this is a really big um, topic, but, um, you know, you'd also mentioned earlier about an, finding the 13-year-old boy um, buried with all these signs of wealth. And so one of the things that I also feel like is really interesting within that question of mortality is um, the the knowing that more young people would die before they make it f- to full, you know, adulthood. Um, so what do we know about how they dealt with mortality, how they dealt with the loss of, of children, um, et cetera, in earlier cultures? Well, um, when I was in Australia again, um, I found that the, uh, the infant mortality rate was very high, uh, usually around 40%. And that seems to be typical for most traditional societies. You know, if you didn't, if you didn't have the uh, immune system that was going to get you through the first year, you probably wouldn't make it any further, or much further uh, after that. So, uh, and there was a lot of infanticide too. If women were had too much work, they just couldn't care for another child. There would be, uh, you know, they just 
leave them out in the bush and that would be it. Uh, so certainly for children, uh, there's a very different, young children, infants, there'd be very different attitudes from our own attitudes today. Um, when they become more adults, um, in these more, con it's, yeah, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. I mean, there's certainly emotional attachments and investments in children that uh, are taken very, are hard to deal with for parents and uh, family members. Um, and it's an area that I haven't explored in a lot of detail, but I know in other culture, well, shouldn't say, I, let me, <laughs> this was an unexpected question, so I've got to think about it for a second. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, uh, first of all, when you're an adult in Australia, for instance, um, the, uh, the ghosts are of the dead are feared, uh, the spirits of the dead. And, uh, and so you're never supposed to use the person's name again. And if somebody else has that name, uh, they change their name. They get another name <laughs> so that you don't have to refer to that person's name. Uh, but on the other hand, the mourning, uh, the, the women that are in mourning um, or the other family members, usually the wives or the, you know, somebody, family member, uh, would carry around one of the bones from the deceased person for a year or two years, or sometimes they carry around the whole body desiccated uh, for a long time too. So, you know, there's this ambiguous attitude that I can't quite interpret between total aversion and uh, being in expressing grief by carrying around part, people's body parts uh, or bones from them at any rate. Um, when we get into more complex uh, hunting and gathering societies, one of the things we get is heavy investments in children uh, in order to increase their worth in marriage because marriage becomes a way of using surpluses to get benefits, access to other people's resources, uh, support from other wealthy families, etc., and so we get these investments in children, um, and if they die, those investments are lost, so they get buried with the children as well. Uh, but obviously, you know, it's a major loss for the family and, uh, and of these investments, and so there's got to be, you know, well, elaborate burials to indicate the magnitude of their loss. Uh, by the way, burial is unusual, in this time period. We only have 200 burials for the entire Upper Paleolithic. That's 30,000 years in all of, uh, all of Europe. So not everybody is being buried. It's only special people that are being buried. And that must indicate, you know, a much higher level of grieving and sense of loss uh, and things like that. You're listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. We are really lucky to have on today Dr. Brian Hayden, who is here talking not only about archaeology, which is his uh, expertise, but 
the way that he is brought to life 20,000 years ago through an adventure story in a book that he has just published. So it's called The Eyes of the Leopard. And oh, it's to be published in a few weeks. To be, to be published, <laughs> although I see right here an actual physical copy. Uh, so a publication copy. <laughs> <laughs> you too can buy one in a mere two weeks. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Um, well, we're all going to be running to, the, uh, to our pre-orders, bookstores. Yeah, Marnie's Bookstore is right across the street here. You don't have to run far. So even if you're out of shape, you can get there. Right, support your local bookstores. <laughs> and and uh, Marnie is great to have on. Okay, so then I just put Brian um, on the spot to talk a little bit about our relation, the relationship to death 20,000 years ago with people there. And, um, and so you said that most people were not buried at that time. And so when you have evidence of... For instance, because you mentioned earlier about the 13-year-old buried with these 200 or 1,000 1,000 dentalium shells. These are small shells, you know, about as big as your fingernail, well, about the the size of the end of your thumb, and they're they're conical, or they're tubular, I guess you should say. So it's like, I mean, they, they, like, clearly these are people with excess, um, you know, wealth, yeah. Um, and uh, who are doing such a send-off for a 13-year-old. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to not see that as some representation of grief. Like they've heavily invested clearly in that, in that child and um, that young man and his potentials. Um, and so I, I, anyway, I just think it's really interesting and it was interesting in the story, um, thinking about uh, loss and how that was represented um, and which gets me into oh, one of the things I really want to talk about, which we've done a whole show about before, but, um, but I believe is one of the things at the heart actually of the eyes of the leopard, which is what we know and do not know and can imagine into about the role of secret societies, um, and these ancient times. And it certainly seems to me that um, what is going on and what we're seeing in this book is the the uh, the efforts to get into a secret society and why may one may want to. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what secret societies are and indeed is this what one of the things that is behind or uh, you know that were revealed is revealed through this book. <laughs> It's absolutely one of the things that's a main feature in the book. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it, I just finished doing a fair amount of, well, a number of years of research on secret societies from an ethnographic uh, point of view. And um, that's in another book um, called The Power of Ritual in Prehistory. Um, but... Uh, and I'm convinced that uh, the secret societies were present in in this time period and in this region uh, specifically. Uh, and so I wanted to make them uh, a dominant feature. And it's one of the most exciting um, things I think you could talk about for this time period as well. Uh, so among uh, secret societies basically seem to emerge together with these more complex uh, and more sophisticated kinds of hunting and gathering societies, which um, really begin around this time period and become more common 
as time goes on in other areas of the world as well. Um, and what these are, uh, they're voluntary so associations, so that not everybody is admitted to them, and they're fairly exclusive as well. Um, they're voluntary associations, so that as distinct from tribal initiations, where everybody gets initiated. So this is a different kind of initiation into this exclusive society um, that you typically have to pay quite a bit to get into. You have to have wealth. So they only tend to occur in societies that can produce surpluses and can produce wealth. Um, and so by um, making wealth a condition of membership, that pretty much limits the membership to wealthy people and to the most powerful people in the community. So today we might think of, uh, you know, men's clubs or golf clubs that for only for the, the richest they have to pay $100,000 membership fees and things like that so that they can get together and cook up ways to, you know, earn more money, get more money. <laughs> And that's basically, I think, what these societies were largely about. Um, two things. One is that uh, in order to advance claims of the members to be able to become more wealthy and to extract more wealth uh, from the communities that they lived in, first of all, they involved membership from different families, from different segments of the community, so that uh, as opposed to family heads, which only have access to individual family members, uh, this organization could draw on resources from the entire community because it included members from all the major uh, family groups or uh, kinship groups in the, in the uh, community. And they could even draw on, these groups tended to become regional, so they could even draw on larger regions for uh, some of the resources. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is that uh, in order to justify the, the acquisition or the use or the uh, obtaining some of this wealth from other community members, they had to justify it in some way and this was usually done on the basis of performing important protection or services for the community of a supernatural nature. And so that uh, these secret societies, and the membership wasn't secret, the existence of the society was not secret. Uh, what was secret was the way their ability to, uh, how they were able to access supernatural powers or their claim to be able to do that. And so they had uh, a whole series of ranks in the societies that, uh, and it's only at the upper ranks that they had the secret of how to really contact the most powerful supernatural forces. Um, and and so they, uh, they claim to protect the community by their ability to contact these supernatural forces and also to promote the fertility of the animals or the plants 
upon which the society depended. And in a lot of cases also to protect people from uh, raids or warfare, a lot of times through military aspects. So that if, you know, they gave you supernatural protection so that if you went into battle, you wouldn't be killed you know, or something like that. Um, and so they develop a lot of esoteric knowledge uh, and techniques for uh, inducing uh, ecstatic kinds of uh, experiences, uh, sacred ecstatic kinds of experiences, which are very powerful, but can be done fairly easily through um, sensory deprivation, like going into caves and total blackness, total darkness, uh, fasting, sleep deprivation, things like that. Uh, later on, hallucinogenic materials too. Um, and this cr creates a, a feeling of reality to these claims. Um, and they, these groups would also put on public performances of their abil supernatural abilities. So their ability to put their hands in boiling water, to handle coals, you know, coals from fires, uh, to uh, kill people and then bring them back to life, to have spears thrust through them, through their bodies, and then re retracted without any visible sign of any damage or any wounds, um, all sorts of things like that. Uh, and so basically, you know, I've drawn on this very rich um, literature describing these secret societies for ethnographic groups and uh, tried to construct what I think is, uh, you know, something similar for um, the secret society, the Lion Lodge in the book. Um, and one of the things that they often do is uh, scarify initiates or do some tattoo them or something like that so that they could become um, identifiable. And interestingly enough, one of the most remarkable um, pieces of carving, ivory carving from this time period, is of a lion-headed man. Uh, this is from the southwestern Germany. Uh, and uh, he's about, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 inches tall or so. And he's got a series of uh, scars on his left shoulder, uh, about four, four lines, scar lines on his left shoulder. And so, uh, and that, uh, <clears throat> you might be able to find something similar like to that in the book as well. <laughs> so. You have to look in. Okay, so what, um, d was there any aspect um, within secret societies of almost like insurance? I mean, I, I get that being part of a secret society would um, help you to have higher status, which might get you better jobs, for lack of a better word, et cetera. <laughs> but I also wondered, like, you know, if you are the head of a household, for instance, and you're part of a secret society, was there any evidence that then, you know, and you die, that the secret society would kind of like take care of your, of, you know, the family that remained? Or do we know mm. about, about anything related to that? Uh, not directly, um, but um, very often the membership in the secret societies was passed down within families. Uh, very often there's a hereditary component to it de derived from some remote ancestor who uh, got all the supernatural power 
um, and passed it on to his children and their children passed it on to their children. Uh, but it also had to be validated and activated by joining the society um, and going through all the initiation rituals and things like that. So I would suspect that, uh, you know, there, this w definitely the members of the society were very well protected while they're, and presumably everybody associated with them. Uh, if you said anything disrespectful or uh, expressed disbelief in, you know, their powers or anything like that, uh, there would be repercussions for sure. I mean, you could... Uh, be taken out and beaten or uh, your property destroyed or things like that. Uh, and in extreme cases, people could be killed. Um, but uh, most of the descriptions of certain, the most powerful members of these societies, that people were really afraid of them and uh, would go out of their way to avoid crossing their path even just so that they wouldn't, uh, you know, risk any... Uh, disfavor of meeting up with these people. So there's sort of a sense that they are both um, kind of the almost the the religion, the governance, and also the policing force um, mm -hmm. in in a community. Uh, but was it about um, policing right and wrong, or was it then about just helping to keep power? Well, it was mainly about getting people to comply with their wishes uh, and their 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 main dictates. You know, they they had a number of commandments that thou shalt not uh, enter into sacred caves. They, thou shalt not, you know, butt into one of our rituals or spy on us. Thou shalt not express uh, disbelief at. Uh, what we're claiming for the supernatural. Uh, and if you crossed any of those or violated any of those commandments, you were in for trouble. And one of the, um, <laughs> one of the elements that I think a lot of people will find a little strange is that uh, Sev, or in the book, is that there would be an option that for violating some of these um, commandments, and that was either you could be killed or you'd have to, you know, flee for your life and find someplace else to live, or you could be initiated into the society. And so that was always an option. If the society members thought that the, you, they could benefit by having you as a member, even if you screwed up, even if you, you know, <laughs> transgressed their prohibitions, violated their commandments, uh, that if you had wealth or talent or some other quality that they thought that they could use, they could just um, decide to initiate you whether you wanted to be or not. And that was your choice. Either you become initiated or you get killed. Uh, that I, I did, I'm glad you talked about because I did think that was really interesting. And oh, and. And back to that in the book, uh, Sev's family, as I've mentioned before, were were outsiders. Like they came into the community with, you know, within a few years, um, and uh, his 
and Sev's dad was really kind of making his way up through the secret society is how it appears to me. Right. Is that realistic that outsiders would have been able to get into secret societies and make their way up that way? Um, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be realistic. I mean, if you're, if you're enterprising and if you um, have other family support um, and if you, uh, you know, adhere to all of the dictates of the local customs and do your best to become integrated into the society, yeah, I don't see any reason why not. Um, well, <laughs> I, I like that. I mean, it's at the, it's, you know, central tension in the book. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I believed it. Uh, okay. So it's called the eyes of the leopard and right. I would not, um, historically have thought of Europe as being a place for, for leopards, but you did start by saying that, um, Europe was a really diverse um, place 20,000 years ago and that we we're often surprised by many of the animals that, yeah. that might have been found there. So I assume you're gonna tell me that indeed there were leopards um, in this area and that we know this. Yeah, Is that true? Well, um, well as I said, uh, I tried to emphasize or tried to mention it in the book, but I probably should have emphasized it even more, is that they, they, there were leopards, but they were rare. Um, as I mentioned before, there was a whole host of um, big cat kinds of species in the area, including cave lions and, uh, and um, what else? Well, they're generally called pantheras, uh, so panthers and, uh, you know, all sorts of that. There were hyenas as well, and they're not cats, obviously, but it's part of the African fauna. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, we have some remains, you know, the archaeologists, the archaeozoologists, uh, can identify cat remains from the, or big cat remains from the, from this period. Yeah. And so did, did we just, like, did they just go extinct? Did we kind of yeah. over hunt them or are too many people or did the climate begin? I mean, it doesn't seem like the climate <laughs> could have gotten like too warm for them because they seem to have lasted just fine in much warmer climates. So no, no, well, that's actually what happened is that um, the climate warmed up, and as the climate warmed up, the forests came back, and when the forests came back, the savannas, the rich grass savannas of the ice age, uh, basically disappeared or moved elsewhere. Uh, so that uh, there was nothing for the big herbivores to eat, um, nothing for the mammoths to eat, nothing for the horses, nothing for the you know, rhinoceroses and all the other animals. So they disappeared, and when those animals disappeared, there was nothing for the big uh, carnivores to eat either. So they went. <laughs> they moved down south to. I don't know if they moved, but anyway, they they uh, they went extinct. Yeah. And uh, so the only place they really survive any longer in the semi-arid savannas in Africa or in um, southern Asia. Just an, it's an incredible book because because of how much rich detail 
that is there that is not just imagined, but is actually based on on your many years of research. Yeah. Um, so it's also a beautiful book. Can you talk a little bit about the illustrator, who it is, and, and how you find an illustrator for a book like this? Well, um, <laughs> the illustrator is uh, Eric Carlson. And um, it was actually uh, my archaeologist friend, Suzanne Villeneuve, who uh, became acquainted with him uh, because he was doing some work uh, for someone else in the Lillooet area. And she uh, she found his work and thought it was uh, pretty good. Uh, he was illustrating uh, scenes from uh, prehistoric scenes from Lillooet. Uh, and he, I'm not sure if he's originally from Alaska or from Montana, but someplace in the western part of North America here. But he certainly become became very familiar with the traditional technology, the traditional lifeways of uh, the First Nations in Western United States. Uh, he is American. Um, so the Northwest in particular, from the Northwest to uh, Alaska. And he's just done some, uh, you know, I, when I saw his work, I thought, he knows what he's drawing. This guy is really... He knows the the people. He knows the uh, the kinds of stances, the the way they stand, the way they dress, the the animals that they uh, were uh, hunting, uh, the traditional architecture. He just he's so familiar with all of these things, and he's got a real gift for making it drawing realistic people. Um, and uh, and and settings, and he's just uh, there's one one person in Czechoslovakia that I think is could rival what Eric does, uh, and uh, it's uh, I think his name is Burian, but um, Eric has got a real gift for making things real and making them uh, come alive. Uh, and so I, you know, when I uh, started working on this, um, I was thinking about who could illustrate it. And basically, I couldn't think of anyone else. Uh, I, th I thought uh, Eric is really the only person uh, other than going to Europe and finding um, this Czech illustrator. Um, and so I contacted Eric. And fortunately, he was interested and he was available and... Uh, and so it's, uh, I feel really fortunate to, yeah, I can't, I can't, uh, say enough about how realistic his, his portrayals of traditional hunting and gathering life are. They're, they're just great. Well, uh, it is a beautiful book, um, and the illustrations are, are really alive as yeah, is. He did the cover too. Um, which is in full color, so you can, you know, kind of go deep into into that beauty. One of the other things that was really um, beautiful in the book and that I appreciated, because I really appreciate this in historic fiction, are the descriptions of the food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I tried to write down some of the things that really stuck out. Uh, one of them was the sort of, I think it was called, oh no, I forget. Kirkland? 
the dried uh, yeah. reindeer meat. Yeah, the Crocan, dried yeah. yeah, the dried meats, the the hot bones broth, except for I think it was called something else that was less appetizing sounding, but still amazing. You know, and the blackberries and the hazelnuts, mm-hmm. and so I was wondering what. Uh, like how realistic um, those descriptions are. Like, what do we know about about the foods and how they would have been prepared um, back then? Well, um, a lot of that is, uh, especially the the dried meat, is derived again from my experiences in the interior of uh, British Columbia with the First Nations group. Uh, I was very fortunate to be able to work with uh, Desmond Peters, one of the elders uh, in, at Pavilion in the Tsukwila Band. And, uh, and we went out on a number of hunting trips. And, uh, you know, he, I gave him some stone tools that I'd made that I'd learned to make in Australia um, and asked him if he could butcher some of the deer that he had killed. And so we spent a good bit of time... Uh, you know, going through butchering animals with stone tools and things like that. And then I was also curious as to, you know, how the uh, meat would be dried uh, traditionally. And so we set up uh, a fire pit, a smoky fire, and he made a little uh, stick frame for drying meat on and, uh, you know, sort of started cutting these, um, the joints of deer into, into fillets. For because they, the meat has to be cut very thin in order to dry it properly and smoke it. Um, and so all of those details are derived directly from that. And, um, you know, traditionally, uh, fish was also dried in a similar kind of fashion. Um, the salmon that uh, the First Nations in that area depended on so heavily. Uh, and so that's, you know, sort of another dimension to the drying of food. Um, and I should also mention that when from this time period, when we get the bones from animals that have been used for food, uh, some of the long bones have what are called uh, filleting cut marks on them so that we know that, uh, you know, when you fillet it, uh, cut a p- uh, fillet off of a bone, it leaves, you get to the bone with a knife and it leaves a mark on the bone. And so we can tell that people were filleting uh, meat back then as well, and um, so that and if you're filleting meat, basically it's the only reason for doing that is to dry it, and if you're drying food, the only reason for drying it is to store it, so it's not being eaten right away, right? So that's one of the other major indicators that we've got food storage going on. Uh, at the time period, and the kind of food storage we have in the Northwest here is always up on stilts. So that's another feature in the book that, uh, you know, comes from the ethnography of this area and Siberia as well. That's what the storage techniques. And then for the rest of it, oh, soups were also very important uh, because it's a way of extracting uh, the oils that are left, the oil and the grease that's left in the bone, because there's a lot of oil in the cancellous tissue, the, the spongy tissue at the end of the bones. Um, and archaeologically, both in France and in the interior here, the, 
they did the very same thing. They basically broke up the bones into really small bits and pieces. Uh, and the only reason for doing that is to put them into water for, to boil off the, the grease that's in the bones. Um, and so we know that they were making soups, I think, can infer that pretty confidently. Um, and these soups were relished. Uh, they were hard to make because we, they didn't have pots uh, the way we do today. Uh, the only thing they had was bark containers, and the only way to boil water in bark containers is to heat up stones and then put the stones in the water in the bark containers if you can make the bark containers watertight, which you can. Um, and these, so these were special kinds of foods. They were very rich. Uh, they had a lot of grease in them, a lot of oils and fats, uh, but those were essential for staying warm um, in the wintertime. You need a lot of calories. You need a lot of uh, essential oils and fats to, um, to metabolize the protein in order to keep you warm, to produce calories. So, and those are always in short supply. Fats and uh, oils are typically one of the most sought after kinds of foods for hunting and gathering peoples because most, most of the wild game is very lean. There's very little fat in it. And, they're very, and you can't make oil out of uh, most other foods, plant foods. Um, so it's a very prized kind of food uh, and uh, so only served at special events and special occasions uh, on a big scale at least. Uh, and the other plants that are involved, well, hazelnuts, pretty sure we're probably in the area, in the protected valleys. Um, blackberries, pretty ubiquitous too, so they must have been using those as well. Uh, the other, the only other really useful plants for calories would have probably been uh, lily roots or cattail roots, things like that. Um, and we don't know a lot about uh, other plants that uh, probably would have been used, but I'm sure, you know, there would have been extensive, but most of them would have probably been leafy kinds of green vegetables that don't have a lot of calories and things. And what do we know about the hierarchy of who was given, like, first dibs um, uh, on on the high-quality foods? Uh, and this comes in part because there's a scene in the story where the kind of, like, important hunters are given, like, <laughs> you know, the first dibs on, on what was caught, um, you know, down to the, you know, to Sev, who is kind of a new hunter, not really a hunter yet, so got, like, lower quality. And then I imagine, you know, the... the the went below that too to who got um, access. So what do we know about who got to eat what and when? Well, um, we know that there are definite rules uh, for uh, dividing up the hunts uh, in hunting and gathering societies. Uh, a lot of times these get uh, shared around and, and there are different portions of meat for different people. Um, for instance, among the Hadza in Africa, um, one of the limbs is always um, reserved for uh, the male hunters that are have been initiated uh, into the tribe already, uh, and so that's uh, one of the prime parts of the the meat. So, um, or of the animal that's uh, that was killed. So we know, and those are typical. Whether you're in uh, the boreal forest of uh, Canada 
or in Australia or wherever you happen to be. So they're, they're very widespread, very common. And, um, you know, I, I sort of uh, guessed a little bit about, you know, exactly what those rules would have been. But, you know, the main point was that there are some definite rules in terms of who gets what parts. So I know that you took a lot from your experience here in the interior of BC um, uh, because you've been very, very involved with uh, archaeology in these areas. Um, and also, uh, it sounds like from your experience with the Aboriginals in Australia, what, what, what do we know about 20,000 years ago here? Were the people living like this <laughs> then here? Uh, well, we get into another little controversy here <laughs> as to exactly when people arrived in North America. And I think, uh, you know, it, it used to be thought that uh, nobody was here before 12,000 years ago when Clovis uh, um, people first uh, appeared. Uh, but a lot of the research more recently has been indicating that, no, that people did arrive substantially earlier than that, maybe as early as 20,000 years ago, maybe only 17,000, maybe 25,000. There's some people that want to push it back even further than that, but I don't think that's too realistic myself. Um, so there might not have been anybody here 20,000 years ago. Um, if we start looking at uh, sort of... Uh, the general kinds of hunters and gatherers that probably would have come over, uh, they we probably had general, simpler kinds of hunting and gathering groups here uh, until about five, 6,000 years ago. And then we start getting the first indications of um, more permanent settlements, larger groups, and the accumulation of wealth. Uh, some of the more recent excavations uh, on Vancouver Island and in the Chilliwack area, uh, no, not Chilliwack, sorry, Maple Ridge area, um, or at, at any rate in the Stolo area, uh, have some very elaborate burials going back to uh, four or 5,000 years ago. Uh, and some of the earliest structures, permanent or permanent-like structures, go back to about the same time period, and that's really the first indication that we get of some complexity, some wealth, some surpluses being produced, uh, and some of them are pretty amazing. Like the the one the burial on Vancouver Island that goes back almost five thousand years ago, I forget, uh, but it was close to or maybe more than a hundred thousand stone beads in one burial. So that's pretty amazing. I mean, that's a huge amount of labor invested in making stone beads. So so 20,000 years ago in this hotbed of, of culture and, um, and ecological richness, that right. is where this book took place. Oh, which I should emphasize disappeared with the uh, warming of the climate and the disappearance of all those animals. It wasn't just the, the, the big predators that left, uh, but the people that stayed there um, lost all of this sophistication of culture uh, 
Oh wow. Okay, so they so the so the people didn't just disappear. It's that the the culture yeah, like became simpler again. Yeah, they couldn't produce as much surplus or as much wealth. Uh, everything got yeah, downgraded, I guess. And so then when here 5,000, 4,000, 3,000 years ago uh, in the west coast of BC, life might have been um, somewhat similar uh, in its cultural aspects as as in um, the eyes of the leopard. Right. Um, and then what do we know about then in, in this part of Europe, uh, like southern France, that part of Europe, what life was like then three, 4,000 years ago there? Well, uh in uh, southwestern Europe, about um, trying to about five thousand years ago, we had the first uh, farming groups coming in, again from the Near East, and um, that pretty much disrupted most of the hunting and gathering societies. You know, it, it spread out over time as groups moved slowly, you know, through Europe and into Scandinavia. Um, they arrived in Scandinavia somewhat later. Um, but uh, so basically there were no hunting and gathering societies left by about 4,000 years ago in in Europe. Um, they've pretty much all been replaced by farming societies. Wow, it's so interesting, the patchwork of, of how this develops. And so is there... Um are there things that we can take away for both how these advanced uh, hunting gather societies, how they came about, and then how they uh, fall apart? Well, uh, how they came about is, uh, again, one of the uh, big issues of contention in archaeology. <laughs> and um, I, uh, for my from my perspective, it's related to technological developments uh, that occurred um, beginning with this time period, but extending on, um, you know, beginning with the Upper Paleolithic 20, 30,000 years ago. But uh, it fall, falls apart in Europe there, but it continues on elsewhere. Uh, on some of the coastal areas, for instance, in the following period, the Mesolithic and coastal areas, they some groups maintained fairly sophisticated um, cultures as well uh, because of the their technological innovations that enabled them to improve fishing and uh, getting resources from the sea, including boat boats and things like that. Um, so. Uh, the um sorry i lost the last part of that question <laughs> uh, so they they well i was asking for commonalities in how uh more advanced hunter gatherer right. societies were developed and technologies um makes sense right like you yeah. you, you have to have a, a means for um excess yeah. um and so th but are there similarities then about how they devolve uh well when uh climate changes or other um, resource changes occur uh, when the resources get knocked out uh, they yeah that pretty much you're forced to abandon all the all the um, 
strategies that you were using to promote your own self-interest that were based on the use of surpluses. So you can't do that anymore. Um, and be as though um, people basically wiped out the stock markets here and they, you know, all of the... Uh, all of the excesses beyond all the excess food and energy, um, which for us is we've got so much surplus beyond food is just mind boggling. But if you took all of those energy sources, the electricity, the fossil fuels, the, you know, all these things that we, we use to get surplus energy. Um, if you took all those away, we would have to go back to simple hunting and gathering uh, routines and the population would go through an enormous decline. You know, 99% of the population would just have to die off. <laughs> uh, and so that's, you know, whether it's we're dealing with contemporary society or prehistoric societies, that that's the underlying factor uh, of importance. Um, and then also we have to deal with, um, in prehistory, the arrival of new technologies and subsistence regimes, for instance, the arrival of farmers. And there, because they have a lot greater capacity to grow food, to produce food out of the environment. And so they can produce a lot higher populations, a lot larger populations, which uh, in any competition over land or resources, they're going to win. Uh, so when they come in contact with hunters and gatherers, even if complex hunting and gathering groups, and it, it, the chronicling all this archaeologically is very interesting because we have these two groups, uh, hun complex hunting and gathering groups and farmers sort of coexisting, uh, interacting a little bit with each other on the edges for hundreds or thousands of years sometimes. So it's sort of like a standoff. Um, and each one of them is sort of adopting little elements of the other culture in Europe, Northern Europe, uh, especially these hunting and gathering groups on the coast, the Baltic coast, the, uh, the French coast in Brittany, uh, in England. Um, with all the food, the sea resources, they start developing these complex cultures again. Um, and they're the ones that confront the, uh, the incoming farmers. So, and then later on, we have yet another wave of, uh, of people coming in, the Indo-Europeans, uh, that use metals. And obviously, they've got very big advantages over uh, any, any groups as well. Uh, that don't have metals in terms of warfare, competition, things like that. Uh, they also rode horses, so they're very mobile. Lots of advantages for military tactics. Um, and if there were any remaining hunting and gathering groups, they would have been <laughs> totally at a disadvantage for uh, those incoming groups as well. So technology and the ability to new, have new ways of producing food uh, with higher populations was uh, a major factor. And I think that was probably the major factor for the incoming um, modern anatomical people into Europe that displaced the Neanderthals as well. It was um, 
technological innovations that allowed them to store food, uh, obtain large quantities of food to store food so that they could have more people surviving through the winters. Um, and therefore, they had larger populations and larger resources. So it's the same, same scenario repeated over and over and over again. And it, the expansion of Europeans into uh, North America, Australia, South America, and Siberia, same kind of story. So in this area, in North America, um, were the earliest humanoids I don't humans know. yeah Can we, but i guess what i mean is the the um anatomically human-like right. people probably, um yeah. uh which you know in europe th- there were the neanderthals neanderthals you say it, when you say it, it sounds so nice wow. um uh that you know kind of came and and co-mingled with the early um, humans right. um, but did did that did those early non-human human like <laughs> beings <laughs> live here too or were the first waves of human like creatures actually human that came to North America uh, well there are a couple of fringe claims that say that um, they claim that there were sites of Neanderthal age down in South America. Um, I think that's very problematical to, in terms of accepting. Uh, the most, almost everybody is convinced that the first people to come over uh, from Asia were fully human, anatomically modern people with all the capabilities that we have, um, both physical and mental capabilities. Uh, that they they made and used boats and uh, could survive through Arctic winters. So all of those things are, you know, fairly imply fairly sophisticated kind of culture. Anatomically modern. Modern. Yeah, that's Humans. way better sounding than humanoids. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll try to be up on that language for our next show. <laughs> yeah. Anatomically modern. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's one of those, you know, jingo kinds of words that are phrases that uh, Scientists invent. I don't know. Uh, to help people like me not sound so well, <laughs> awful. Uh, I mean, we usually just refer to them as modern humans, but I don't know why that's, you know, they come up with these technical terms. You know, so. Well, anatomically modern is going to be really convenient once we are part robots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our future selves will be happy for that yeah. uh, nice yeah. language. <laughs> Uh, so I um, I want to talk a little bit about the process of that you went through creating this book because you have a number of books um, under your name that you have created before this. And I'm wondering what it was like for you, the actual act of, of doing a book that required deep, deep imagining um, versus just research and all the other skills that you've clearly honed over the years to be able to produce um, the the books that you've done previously. What was that like for you, and was it that different? Um, Well, there are a number of aspects to creating a book like this. Uh, The the imagining was... uh, 
yeah, it wasn't that hard. I was drawing on a lot of my own experiences and uh, reading about those secret societies. I mean, there's just so much graphic stuff that it wasn't hard to imagine <laughs> those at all. Um, but I have also, you know, attended a number of uh, uh, rituals, uh, First Nations rituals and um, sweat lodges and uh, done some experiences myself and also drawn on the storytelling styles of that have been recorded on film from some shamans uh, and things like that. So the imagining wasn't that difficult for me, I don't think. Um, I was helped by a number of other people's suggestions as to, oh, we should try this or you should try that. And uh, so that came. But uh, writing for young, young readers was uh, much more of a challenge. And I've, as I mentioned, I always had been interested in uh, books and literature for young readers. And I tried... Um, tried my hand at writing a few short stories in the past. And I, when I retired, I thought, well, it's something I'd like to try to expand on and when I have a little bit more free time. And uh, my archaeologist friend, Suzanne Villeneuve, uh, was encouraging me to, to do it. And she, she was actually, I think, the first one to say that, uh, oh, you should try writing a book about, uh, you know, the, the Stone Age uh, for for young readers, um, set in France. And at the time, I thought, no, this is going to be way too complicated. I, you know, I don't feel uh, sure enough in my writing ability to be able to put together a whole book. I just like to stay with little short stories, something far simpler. Uh, but I um, took her advice and took a couple of courses on writing children's literature at UBC uh, with Mike Katz. And uh, when he found out I was an archaeologist, he said, why don't you write a book about, you know, the archaeology, <laughs> you know, set in the archaeological times that you're familiar with? Uh, there's not much about that in, in children's literature, and he thought they would love it. And so he twisted my arm some more. So between the two of them, I finally started considering, okay, maybe I'll, I'll do that. But uh, it took some convincing. <laughs> and, uh, and just uh, going through the learning process of writing a totally different, um, non-academic kind of book, you know, I dabbled in it before. But in terms of the conventions that are used, um, the protocols of wording and, uh, you know, trying to create a, a full story that uh, involves different personalities and trying to create, you know, deal with the psychology of different people, create different personalities. That was all much more challenging. And um, so I, it took a long time to figure a lot of that stuff. Actually, this, I began writing a few, the first page of this, this, of this while I was actually in Les Aisies, but that was eight years ago, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's been a very long learning process, um, and I, one of the hard parts was the anachronisms, like a lot, so many of the terms that we have in today's uh, language, like, oh, just a minute, you know, well, you can't use minutes, I'm sorry, or, you know, it took a long time. Well, is time really a concept that would have been 
used back in those days or, uh, you know, just uh, it's only a few feet away. Well, people didn't measure things in feet probably back then. They used paces or the times of the year, you know, and so there was a lot of things like that. Um, And just the pacing of things, trying to work that out, trying to... uh, trying to develop uh, descriptions that people would, not making them too detailed so they got boring, but providing enough detail so that it provided critical kinds of information and trying to weave the details into the storyline so that, you know, it didn't seem like uh, this is what things were like. And in the past, there were lions and tigers and uh, mammoths and, you know, have to try to incorporate those things in a some sort of a context where they they flow and they ease they work easily. Well, I definitely think that was the big success of the book. Um, it never felt pedantic, and yet it's so rich. And your your language, the metaphor, and just even the little bit that you read, I think people could see that. That yeah. um, and. You know, as you're you're speaking, I was like, oh yeah, how do you talk about time? I mean, and in there's not a moment in the book where where it feels like you got it wrong. You know, like where where you're brought out. Um, yeah, you know, other than the freckles thing, and I mean, which was which was true. I knew it was it, there was it was going to be true, um, or you know, based on a lot of thinking. So, um, uh, so I really um, appreciated that. And one of the things also that really stood out to me that I I appreciated was that were the stories um, and the kind of the myths within the story mm-hmm. that were shared. And I wondered about. Were each of those like something you had to then further imagine or were those things that you'd heard through time or, you know, like how, how did you get those? To, like? <laughs> well, um, first of all, before we talk about those, I wanted to mention that uh, I had to figure out another way of representing time. And uh, when I was in Scouts a long time ago, they always used to tell me, well, you can tell how, how long uh, the sun's going to set by holding your hand out and using your, your fingers to measure the distance that the sun has got to go before it hits the horizon. So the hand span became the, the measure of time in the book. And I, I thought people would have had some sort of measure of time, and that, that's the best one I could think of. Um, <clears throat> And uh, so the stories that the shaman uh, relates, uh, those are also fundamentally based on themes that are in the ethnographies as well. Um, the, uh, a lot of northern groups do see uh, specific stars like the Polaris or the Pleiades or some other prominent star as being uh, the hole in the sky where you have to go through to reach the sky world. Uh, and so that's totally rooted in, uh, in the ethnographic details. Uh, I had to imagine, you know, the, the beings that would be in the sky and their reaction, interactions and how they came down to earth and things like that. Uh, so that part, you know, it's a combination of being rooted in fundamental uh, world views of what the sky is like and the sky world and the stars uh, and sort of developing, you know, what I think would be a, a plausible kind of scenario. Um, 
and then the uh, there's another one where uh, uh, there's the bear transformation, and that also is rooted fundamentally in um, in the stories both. Well, throughout the North, basically, there are very common stories in North America of the bear ancestor who was transformed from a bear into a person. Uh, those are very common. Uh, but the details, you know, of how that happened and, you know, the, the attraction of the shaman from the sky to the bear, uh, those are sort of things that I imagined. Uh, except for the, uh, the, I got some, I got some, <laughs> some uh, pushback from using uh, one of the terms there. That I described the the field where he landed uh, as the bum in the air, bum <laughs> in the or bottom in the air uh, field uh, where there's strawberries, and I was uh, accosted by an archaeologist who said. How can you be so disrespectful to women and making fun of them and joking about, you know, them picking strawberries because that's what that referred to? But um, in fact, that is another detail derived directly from the ethnographies of the interior. There is a place called Bum in the Air uh, Field where people used to pick uh, strawberries, and uh, and I really wanted to create as realistic a portrayal of life 20,000 years ago as possible. And so I didn't want to compromise uh, too much <laughs> in making things uh, politically nice or politically correct these days. And But th that kind of joking was very, very typical of uh, traditional hunting and gathering societies. You find all sorts of sexual innu innuendos all over the place in uh, almost all the... Uh, uh, mythologies that I know of hunting and gathering societies and you know this is falls into is one of those I love that I that's one of the things I did really love about it that the humor yeah right and I was just like right well, like why would just like everything else <laughs> why is humor humor a modern you know <laughs> creation yeah. I yeah. um so I really appreciated that oh and our time is really short uh -oh. so can what it's about to come out. People want it. Where do they go? Uh, at this point, uh, you have to go to your local bookstore and put in an order. Uh, the publisher is Granville Island Publishing, uh, down on Granville Island in Vancouver. Uh, and so they're the people that have to be contacted. But they tell me that uh, within the month or so, it should also be available on Amazon or uh, and also in Chapters or Indigo. Uh, so that so Eyes of the Leopard by Brian Hayden you can get it at your favorite local bookstore and you can 